Hello, everyone, and welcome back to our Maroon podcast. Today, we're actually hosting a special episode, and we have Professor Chris Blattman, who is sitting next to us. Hi, thank you for having me. And we are basically here to talk to you about a new event happening in the University of Chicago's Harris School of Public Policy, Pearson Institute for Study and Resolution of Global Conflict. So on October 14th, the Pearson Institute will gather global policymakers, leading scholars, and subject matter experts at the 2022 Pearson Global Forum titled Discrimination and Marginalization. The forum will explore how the international community is dealing with dozens of active conflicts and quickly shifting relationships between and among nations. And attendees will get to hear from, among others, Amina Mohammed, Deputy Secretary General of the United Nations, and our very own Professor Christopher Blackman, author of The Why We Fight. And we are very glad to have Professor Blackman today with us here, me and Jake, to talk about this forum. Yeah, and let's dive into our questions. Yeah, it's great to be here. Um, Professor Blattman, would you like to just introduce yourself to our listeners? Sure. So I'm an economist and a political scientist, uh, and I spent the last 20 years working on issues of conflict and violence. So I started out in East Africa, working in a war in northern Uganda. Uh, I started began working in West Africa, especially in Liberia for many years, on these issues of ethnic violence and civil war. And then about five or ten years ago, I started uh, transitioning to working in the Americas. So I've been working in Colombia and Mexico and even Chicago on urban violence, especially violence between gangs and organized crime. And uh, I don't just study it. A lot of what I do is I try to identify programs that are working to reduce violence and try to figure out which ones work and why and spread the ones that are, that are working, you know, that are working well and stop the ones that are working badly. I believe that one topic of the Global Forum is um, Colombia, so I assume violence that's happening there. How does that relate to the theme of the forum, discrimination and marginalization? How is the violence connected to those two themes, and what's your opinions on how it can be fixed? Right. So, you know, the, the, whole, the forum is something we hold every year, because, and it's a way, like, people like me who are trying to work in the world and build out knowledge, you know, it doesn't really make sense for me to write a paper that a bunch of other academics read. I think we want to reach... A big audience, and that's not just the faculty here who are privileged from faculty. It's not just the other University of Chicago faculty. There's there's researchers and practitioners all around the world who are of trying course. to bring these ideas. So, and there wasn't really a forum for them to meet and talk. Uh, there's a big forum for central bankers, and there's a big forum for politicians. There's a big forum for this and a big forum for that. So we thought we'd create this forum for really thinking about conflict and bringing all these different groups together. The people are doing it. The people are thinking about it. Uh, and, and each year we pick a theme and, you know, discrimination and discrimination marginalization sort of feels very present in the United States right now. So I think it also speaks to like a domestic audience. It's obviously like a big problem internationally. Uh, essentially, you know, I think there's, there, we think of marginalization of a group as, as essentially one of the major drivers of war. We could get into why. Uh, but but this is it's it's our it's our attempt to sort of pick on the theme that like resonates with a global audience and a local one. So you mentioned that it was your collective attempt to pick yeah. a theme. How involved were you personally with planning this global forum? So you know we have a whole team that plans the forum who are <laughs> professionals at this. So yeah. it's perhaps a good thing. I mean I think the faculty are especially our you know the head of the Pearson Institute Jim Robinson are. I think we sort of help set strategy and we debate themes mm. and then we let the people who actually know how to 
you know, find the great people sort of and, and, and get the lineup because I think, you know, you compare a conference that I've run in the past and you compare this and this is orders of magnitude <laughs> superior. And so that's that's kind of the division of labor. And um, can you actually tell us a little a little bit or like spill a little tea about what you are going to talk about specifically in the forum? And I actually read your bio before this interview mm-hmm. and I saw one thing you said is war is hard and finding peace is easier than you think. Mm-hmm. And I actually think the exact opposite. Can you just elaborate on that? Yeah, so I mean, that's a good, it's kind of the same question because that's maybe one of the first messages of this book. I wrote this book in in. April or came out. I wrote this book before April. It came out in April, mm-hmm. and it's called Why We Fight. Um, but I start off pointing out that actually most of the time we don't fight, and and that seems at odds with this really natural reaction that people have, which is well, it actually feels like we're we're really we're a violent species. There's always a war, and it's not just you. You know, Winston Churchill, who, who you know who knew what he was talking about, mm-hmm. has this very famous line where he sort of talks about war being our natural condition. And there's never been a time in history when war is not just ever present. And so that's kind of true. But at the same time, like the, the problem is, is we don't pay attention to all the times we don't fight. And so, so everyone was paying attention in, you know, in, in earlier this year to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And within sort of the same couple of weeks, India accidentally launched a cruise missile at Pakistan. Mm-hmm. Now, if India and Pakistan have gone to war as they've been threatening to do for decades and decades and decades, you know, the newspaper would be full of that. But India and Pakistan didn't go to war, and they didn't go to war the day after that or the day after that. They haven't gone to war since. They haven't gone to war for decades, despite, uh, despite being at, you know, at extreme odds. Yeah. And so, like most adversaries, they prefer to loathe in peace, right? And so our natural human state is actually tense competition. Hmm. But the idea, that the starting point of the book is to say war is really costly. It's just ruinous. So it's like the worst way to achieve your political objectives. Uh, and because there's almost always like a bargain, compromise, tense, loathing and peace kind of situation that's going to make you better off than like blowing a bunch of stuff up, destroying half of what you're fighting over, and then trying to, you know, flip a coin for it. And so that's the story of the book. And then the way it goes, and then it goes on to say, well, this is a, a useful frame, because I didn't write a book called Why We Don't Fight. Yeah. <laughs> right? I said then every reason we do fight is a reason that a leader or a society ignores those costs of war or is willing to pay them. And then the book is just walking through the five main ways that that happens. So it's just sort of true, but, but you have to start from the position that actually 999 ethnic groups out of 1,000 don't fight and 999 national rivals uh, don't, don't invade, don't go to war. They find other ways to resolve, and, and, and so we have to be paying more attention to those cases. So, of course, the timing of your book is a little funny in terms yeah. of the very visible war in Ukraine. Right. Um, some friends and I have talked about what we think that means in terms of geopolitics, the ramifications, um, and which I think are somewhat dependent on what the outcome is, which yeah. still isn't decided. And, um, you know, obviously we're undergrads, we don't know everything. Um, my friends tend to be very pessimistic in terms of what this means, in terms yeah. of what China might do with Taiwan and other mm-hmm. dominoes falling on mm-hmm. the international stage. Do you believe that you the conflict in Ukraine is a harbinger of more change to come and a potential shift in the world order? What's having the chance to pick your brain on that is quite an opportunity. So yeah. I'm, I'm just curious for your opinion. I mean, so it's it's the biggest shift in the world order at least since September 11th, 2001, if not mm-hmm. since maybe 1989 and the end of the yeah. Cold War, right? So this it's a world changing event. Is it one that though that so that's true? That's absolutely true. 
Uh, it's one that's, I think, further polarized this sort of axis of, of autocracies versus yes. democracies. Um, what, do I think it portends more violence and, and the, a greater risk of international war? I don't think so. If, if I see a lot of things pushing against that. I think there's a, there's a potential for, I think, I think Western unity and resolve uh, against what they're, you know, against an illegal invasion was unusually strong. It exceeded everybody's expectations, including most of us who live in the West and most of the Western leaders. That is going to be a very serious deterrent, I think, to any future rival to, to, to exercise violence. Now, I actually think there's a lot of potential for, for China to invade Taiwan still. I think this, 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 we could get into why, but, mm-hmm. but, but so I, 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 if anything, I think the risk is slightly lower than it was eight months ago. I think because this is such a painful reminder of how costly and ruinous this war and how many, how attractive are the alternatives, difficult as they are. I agree. This summer, when Nancy Pelosi she landed in Taiwan, that garnered a lot of attention in the news, and、mm-hmm. rumors were flying around saying China will invade Taiwan, but it did not. It's probably, as you said, costly or、mm-hmm. not the right time for China、mm-hmm. to pay such amount of cost under COVID nineteen、yeah. when our economy is bad. Yeah. yeah. Okay, and can we go back to the forum forum a little bit?、Mm-hmm. Um, we're just wondering, like, what are your opinions on the purpose of such forum? Like, why is it needed, especially under the context of where we are right now? I mean, you know, actually, the the session that I'm going to do is a good example. I think it's trying to put people in conversation that aren't always in conversation. So I'm someone who's always worked on international conflict mostly, and whether that's in Colombia or Mexico or. Or Uganda or Liberia, and then I've started to sort of do something unusual for someone in my position, which is to start to study violence in Chicago, and and I think that I end up learning a lot,、uh, but I I think I then also bring some ideas and fresh perspective that that isn't always there, and and indeed one of the big、um, gun violence prevention programs that we're running in Chicago right now is based on an African program that I helped that I stumbled upon and, and helped grow the. I'm in conversation with the head of the Institute for Nonviolence, Chicago, who is a is somebody who's spent his entire career、uh, in Boston, Rhode Island, and here in Chicago trying to stop violence. And so these aren't you know two people like me and people like him aren't usually in conversation and comparing these things. And what do we learn? You know, obviously, gang violence in Chicago is super different from Great Power War, and that's super different from ethnic conflict, and that's super different from civil wars. Right, but but actually, we have a lot to to learn from one another, and so so that's so that's like an interesting conversation that might not normally happen, and that's like I think emblematic. That's kind of what the forum is about: bring all these people together, and whether it's on stage or off stage, most importantly, it's these conversations that hopefully would not otherwise happen. Thank you for that. Do do you believe that the framework of your book is cross applicable between these very different types of conflict? Yeah. In fact, you know, there's a so the idea that that fighting is costly. And that there ought to be a better way is not just applicable to gang violence and the Great Power War; it's applicable to labor strikes and court battles. Any time、yeah. we're contesting with one another, right? Most unions and management are adversarial to some degree,、mm-hmm. right? But most of the time they don't strike because striking is costly,、mm-hmm. right? So they they cajole, they maneuver, they bar, and then strikes happen for some of the same reasons. A lot of the theory and the apparatus we have for understanding. Conflict more formally in the violent sense actually comes from the study of 
labor strikes and come wow. and study court battles. Mm. Likewise, most of the time we settle at a court, right? It's actually the exception, not the rule to go to court. So it's also the exception, not the rule to, to use violence. And, and so the, and, and basically the social science has given us five main ways that all these things break down, whether it's labor disagreements or court disagreements or, you know, political disagreements. And it's, it's basically a way that, one way that we ignore the costs. So, so one is when, basically, when leaders ignore the costs because they're unaccountable. So the extreme version is a personalized dictator. But even other, even in democratic forms of government, we can have leaders with insulated from the costs and private incentives to use violence against the interests of their group. Uh, it's when they're ideological, when violence is delivering us something like glory or vengeance that's ethereal, that's not part of the pie we're fighting over, but that, or, or, or nationalism or something uh, uh, or religious objectives that we're willing to pay some of the costs of war because we only get them through violence. It happens when we're biased, basically when we underestimate the costs or overestimate our chances of victory. Mm. And that happens mm. for both psychological reasons but institutional reasons, like when a, when a democratic president or especially a personalized dictator is insulated from good information because of the way they're, you know, they, they filter information up. The fourth is about when the situation is fundamentally uncertain. We, we put a lot of emphasis on bias and we forget that there's just an immense amount of uncertainty and, and that war becomes a gamble. And it's a gamble where that's, it's actually hard to resolve uncertainty because both sides have an incentive to bluff, right? It's like a game of poker. And, and it's never optimal to bluff none of, the time, none of the time. It's never optimal to bluff all the time in poker. It's never optimal to fold all the time. It's never optimal to call all the time in poker. Right? Yeah. <laughs> you bluff some of the time, you call some of the time. And so this that's a really important strategic dynamic that most people don't mm -hmm. understand that actually I think is maybe more important than misperceptions, even for this war in Russia. And gangs, super relevant. Um, and then and then there's a, the fifth cause is when we sort of believe our opponents unreliable, that that peaceful mm -hmm. deal can be made, but we think they're, particularly when we think they're going to be much more powerful in the future, and they're not going to want to stick to that deal. And so the deal unravels today. And so there's a whole set of reasons that even though we both want to deal, we, we can't, we can't make it. And so the, the book sort of applies that to all sorts of different conflict. I mean, the way it makes sense for gangs, uh, you think about the streets of Chicago, you hear two stories in the newspaper, yep. which are true. One is, is, this is about, it's a story of essentially a bias. It's a story of passions and emotional sort of hot reactive reactions, essentially to a perceived slight. Yes. So that's that's kind of a story of almost individuals making a persistent biased choice. And that's that's true. That that explains some of the violence. The other story you hear is about the a, a story of blood feuds, about he you know, this the someone from this group they killed my uncle or my father and then they killed my brother and this trading back and forth, sometimes for mm -hmm. decades, of violence. And so violence vengeance is in some sense this ideological or intangible thing that they get from that it's not irrational it's not it's, it's emotional but only in the sense that violence is the reward and so they're willing to pay some of those costs of war mm -hmm. take some of those risks in order to get this ethereal thing yeah, it's seen as a quid pro quo mm -hmm. right almost. Mm -hmm. but the, to go back to uncertainty that's actually one of the biggest drivers and we don't talk about it mm -hmm. um you you know i met one in, in doing this work i met one guy who ran a very violent drug gang that's why he was in our program and he said well you know the way i became a killer it wasn't that he was hot-headed and he didn't want vengeance that's not actually the rule he said look somebody robbed me when i was starting out mm -hmm. uh they robbed our gang and we realized that they thought we were weak right they didn't huh. know how strong we were right because there's uncertainty and so we had to show them 
what we were made of. We couldn't just talk. Talk's cheap, right? And so we had to kill, and we had to do it again and again and again. And occasionally we have to do it in order to maintain this reputation. But that rep reputation is our protection. And you only need reputation in a world of uncertainty, right? That's a cold, hard-headed strategic calculus mm -hmm. that operates for nations as well as gangs, right? And yeah. We get, yeah, we get, yeah. And we lose it if we... And so the idea of the book is to sort of draw attention to some of these subtler and strategic logics rather than just blaming everything on hot-headed emotion and aggression. I believe that some of your training is as an economist, mm -hmm. um, but this is work that seems somewhat separate from that, yet in... You, in um, how you articulate your thinking, I do see some like economic principles. How do you think um, your work has been informed by that? Education? Yeah, I mean, the book's trying to bring together all these social sciences, like it's sociology, it's anthropology, it's political science, it's economics, it's psychology. I mean, the economics is a little bit hidden, like these strategic logics of an unaccountable leader who might have a private incentive yes. for mm -hmm. war. This story I told you about uncertainty and, and the strategic incentives for reputation or bluffing. Uh, and the story... You know, we haven't had a chance to talk about, but these commitment problems, these times when you worry your opponent's unreliable, these are basically the stra strategic explanations is code for game theory. Yeah, <laughs> and and game theory is really a central tool of economics and political science, and it's where the, the literatures overlap, and where why you can have people like me who straddle both fields, and so so that's what economics and political science is sort of brought jointly. And then when I talked about ideology and bias, I think that's what behavioral science and psychology has brought. And I'm married to a psychologist, and we do a lot of our work together. And so, I mean, this is sort of a, you can't, I think, understand this phenomenon in a single disciplinary, you know, silo. Mm -hmm. And so the book's just trying to, like, sort of teach what we've, and bring together what we've got from all these different, these different disciplines. That's really cool. Um, so do, the Pearson, it's the Pearson Institute for Global Conflict, right? Yeah. And do you feel like the Pearson Institute brings professors from all of these sorts of disciplines together and mm -hmm. pushes them to work in an interdisciplinary way? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting when, you know, if you were to walk down this hallway where we both have the, the four chairs, but also the broader set of faculty, a lot of us bridge these disciplinary boundaries. So Jim Robinson and Andrilla Dubay and I are all good examples of people who spent part of their career in a political science department, part of their career in economics, part of their career in public policy, right? And we straddle mm -hmm. all these worlds and, and a mm -hmm. place like Harris and the Pearson Institute is a nice place to straddle those things because, you know, the problems don't get solved in narrow disciplinary silos. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and, 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 and I could give you set 10 more examples of, of people like down the hallway in different disciplines who are straddling this way. And I think that's kind mm -hmm. of what we've tried to build. Yeah, and I think that interdisciplinary approach is really shown in the forum. Like you guys talk about countries, specific mm -hmm. countries as case studies and also media coverage and bias, all of these things coming together. And I skimmed through mm -hmm. what you have, like what you guys have in the calendar. Mm -hmm. It says that Colombia, Palestine and Lebanon, these three countries were picked out as specific regions or topics of discussion. And can you please tell me a little bit about why were these countries chosen to be the case studies? Like why these mm -hmm. three? Instead of like Ukraine or Taiwan, or right. yeah. Well, I mean, one one interesting thing is you you do you have, you plan these things far in advance, right? Yeah. And so uh, sometimes events outrun the outrun outrun the planning. And so <laughs> yeah. I suspect like the choice of the focus of these happened. You know, six months ago or seven months ago, we were all a little less concerned mm -hmm. about this thing. And so mm -hmm. um, I think that, but you know. I think it's a good, listen, everybody's talking about Ukraine and Russia, everybody's talking about Taiwan and China. 
it's not clear that what a forum needs to do today is simply to echo what every single podcast. Yes. So I think there's also a strategy of let's not change course. Let's actually refocus on the the next crisis, right? It's the, you know your job is to be a bit forward looking mm-hmm. in where the real where the fragilities are in future, and not just to sort of uh, perform emergency medicine and get obsessed with the conflicts right in front of you. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like the topics we're gonna you guys are gonna discuss about are real are still applicable to all sorts of conflicts, as you right. said, like the the canes and then yeah. wars on the cold scale. I mean, this is the hazard of writing a book or having an article or choosing a like a thing to study in a career or planning a conference is you, the world changes quickly and you don't yeah. know what's yeah. going to be relevant. Yeah. Um, there are all these, I have friends, you know, other people down the hall, Konstantin Sonin, who is a, one of the most prominent economists in Russia, uh, had to flee. Um, Scott Gelbach who's one of the most prominent political scientists studying Ukraine and Russia. They're part of the Pearson sort of broader family. Um, these people were fighting for relevance for 20 years after the end of the Cold War. Right? <laughs> people who, you know, you, yeah. if you were a graduate or an undergrad, and you, what, did you, what did you want to study in 1980? Well, you would have started studying Russian, right? Or you, yes. and, and you might have decided, I'm going to write my dissertation. Yeah, my mom studied Russian in college yeah. in the early 80s, late 70s. And then, and then, <laughs> and then, and then they kind of, and then they, all, the, all the attention got stolen by, by those of us who study like, African civil wars, right? And so or, or people who study you know, gang violence in the United States. And now, basically, like events have made all these, all these people have come out of the woodwork. We have all this deep expertise, fortunately, in the U.S., so people actually you know, know something. Um, so, so they were still around, and they're back in the limelight, and there's lots of forums for them. Uh, this is a forum to sort of, I think, bring out other important, you know, other areas of fragility in the world. I I think of um, the pandemic and how the very small set of people who had studied mRNA vaccines, like suddenly their research is so important. (laughs) We need that immediately. (laughs) I mean, that's, I mean, whatever you do in your life, a lot of people, you know, most people listen to this aren't going to become academics, right? They're going to go off and and, and you make these idiosyncratic choices uh, somewhat. And then your, your, your fate's further going to be pulled in idiosyncratic ways by events and, and you can't predict it. And so, uh, and so, you know, I think you just, we all have to get a little bit at peace with that. Yeah. 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 I often feel like fairly minor decisions that I make in terms of what class I'm going to take next could very easily have yeah. some ripple effect and it goes way down the line. I well, the, yeah. The way I start the book actually is how I started working on this is I was, I thought I was going to work on industrialization in Kenya and I talk about how. Uh, a con man tricked me out of my laptop, and so I found myself in an internet cafe sitting next to a humanitarian worker who had mm-hmm. come back from this conflict in northern, northern Uganda, and I followed her there. And that not only led to me studying conflict, but we're now married. Today's our 15th wedding anniversary. We have oh. two kids. Wow. And so, so events will take you in very unexpected directions. I try to just follow follow where life <laughs> takes me, follow the energy. Sometimes it leads to me staying up too late at night, but, yeah. you know... And it's I feel time. like whatever I want to learn, speaking from the classes I'm taking this mm-hmm. quarter, I'm taking international relations mm-hmm. and another policy class. Mm-hmm. If the con- the soon-to-be conflict between China and Taiwan did not happen mm-hmm. over the summer, I might choose to take like another physical science core. Yeah. Yeah. yeah whatever we want to learn is really impacted by, by what's happening mm-hmm. in this wide, wide world. Yeah. yeah. Well, on that topic too, this year, you know, sometimes I'm often pulled into teaching masters and the PhD students. And this year I really wanted to teach an undergraduate class. So in the spring, I'll teach a class called why we fight. Uh, that's basically almost pre- prerequisite free in the sense that 
I, I want it to be like the gateway drug for huh. people to do more social science uh, or people to study more about conflict. And so, so that's, that's a class I'll be offering in the spring. Is it a so- sociology class or policy? I think class? it's probably, it's listed as probably, certainly a public policy class. And I think we cross list it in economics and political science. Okay. I will sign up. <laughs> <laughs> Good to know, definitely. Okay. And perhaps last few questions about the forum. Mm-hmm. I've actually talked to a few of my friends about the Pearson Institute and this forum. And a lot of them are just, you know, little freshies coming to the university. And they're yeah. worried about whether they're going to understand it sitting mm-hmm. in a room with other professionals or like people who have worked for decades in this field. So like how have the forum, like de- how is the forum designed or how are the contents mapped out prepared to make sure that it, it like attracts interest from like a wide range of audiences? Right. I mean, listen, if you were to come to one of our academic seminars, which are pitched at like the leading researchers and the best PhD students, you might like get lost in the slides and the math or whatever, right? Like that's, that's the opposite of what this is about, right? This is all of us that are on stage, whether we're the policymakers or the academics, spend a lot of time working with like, you know, people who are not experts in the field. And we just try to and I think we're all practiced at talking about it and uh, because we're not effective if we speak in academies. Um, and, and like I said, going back to the, the gifts of conference organizers is I think people are also chosen to be on stage because they have a particular ability to, a, be, like one, on the one hand, have something really like new, true, and different to say, mm-hmm. uh, but at the same time have a way of explaining it that's accessible. So trust me, and University of Chicago freshmen are like, you know, several standard deviations above the average like you guys are doing fine <laughs> you're not getting any trouble like understanding is where you know the, when you're writing something for the new york times or whatever you're not you're, you that's that's a too ambitious sort of level of you know you're, you're trying to pitch to to to, to people who aren't that engaged and so yeah. i think any student here is going to do just fine yeah um do you have any other questions uh i would say i'm good but um what I feel I feel like it will be great if you can talk about because usually I feel like when I go to a forum I mm-hmm. I listen to all of those things mm-hmm. and I will forget about ninety nine percent of yeah. what I heard like <laughs> a few hours later. So if you like if there is one key takeaway or like just one sentence that people will you you guys hope people to get from the forum, what would that be? From the forum, it's overall forum. Yes. It doesn't have to be the major one. Just one thing you really hope people to get out of this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. I, I'm trying to think of... Uh, not, I, I'm trying to think if I have a good answer to that. Um, Seems like we have a lot of yeah. valuable no. things that are just so yeah. hard to pick. Right, <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, okay, so I have... Uh, you know, It's interesting. I'm used to sort of trying to give my book in one line, but now I have to do a whole conference and dozens of books. I guess here's the thing I would say. <laughs> Every single person it's 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 the thing that's not said. Yeah. All right. But that I think is really important for, you know, someone like, you know, an undergraduate age who's got to choose what do I want to do with my life, which is probably mm-hmm. consumes a lot of people. By the way, that doesn't really stop. You keep asking yourself that question for a long time. Every single person on stage has decided that they're gonna like pick one place and one issue and they're really going to dedicate themselves to it because that's how they think they can have social change and then they're on stage because they were good at that and 
and there in that is a message I think about actually how you change the world one of the other classes I sometimes teach I sort of a half a joke title but it's called how to change the world but the message of social science and the message of policy is it's like one step at a time there are you know you don't have to be president and you don't have to be uh, and you don't have to totally rework the entire system right that all yeah. these people have actually made the world meaningfully more peaceful by picking one thing and working doggedly at it for years and that to me is like really hopeful so everybody just has to kind of find their thing uh, and if it happens to be a piece, that's kind of how I end the book. I sort of say, how, here's how to find your thing and, and to talk. But, but, you know, some people are going to care about the environment and some people are going to care about racial justice and some mm-hmm. people are going to care about uh, criminal justice, whatever, right? And I think that's the overarching message is the path to success for all these people is just in this, like, dogged attention to, like, trying to make that difference in their community or in their country in a way that's on a human scale. And so it's very doable. So hopefully undergrads are can see that more often around them. Mm-hmm. Thank you for that. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, I hope that's a message that we can walk away with. Yes. And just to be sure, be sure you guys know about this, this forum is open to undergraduate students and is free. So be sure to register, register that on the Pearson Institute website and you can participate either in person or live stream. And most importantly, there will also be free food. <laughs> yeah. Also important for our student attendance. <laughs> Very much important for our, mm-hmm. for our, um, for our listenership. Uh, this is Jake Zucker and Mickey Yang from the mm-hmm. Chicago Maroon signing off. <laughs>